Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts idea that scientists should be in charge of public policy is mad. For the lack of medical care that's been given over the last year has been a self-imposed own goal. Three. I think this is so psychologically damaging for those of us who are clinging on thinking just one more push, one more heave. Two. It's not what we've been told is unprecedented. It's very precedented. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. We now have a name for the disease, and it's COVID-19. So said the boss of the World Health Organization on the 11th of February 2020, exactly a year ago today. Back then, China had registered 42,000 coronavirus cases, Britain just eight. Within weeks, of course, we were in lockdown. A lockdown which was meant to be just for Easter. But with the daffodils emerging as Easter 2021 approaches, a lockdown we're still struggling to escape. The UK is now vaccinated approaching one in five of our population, almost 20%. In the EU, it's less than 4%. Daily coronavirus cases are down almost 70% since early January. And deaths from, with or related to Covid have also plunged. As the human, financial and economic cost of lockdown continues to spiral, just how long can these restrictions remain in place? So what do you think, co-pilot Pearson? Should Boris Johnson now give us the signal? Will we soon see Britannia unchained? It's not looking a lot like it this week, co-pilot Halligan. I think we reached peak... I mean, I know every week's peak crazy, but um, this was really Matt Hancock jumping the shark this week, as, as, as you will have observed. I mean with this border quarantine, draconian penalties for not complying with the new rules, including a 10-year prison sentence for lying about where you've travelled from. (laughs) Well, I've got got my holiday book for Turkey in July. So, so A, will you come to visit me in Holloway, Liam? And B, can Reese arrange for me to record Planet Normal from a prison? So... (laughs) So I think that's what that's what we're aiming for. There's the wonderful Matt cartoon on the front of the Telegraph <laughs> yes, today, isn't there? Yes. Two lags with the arrows on their suit. <laughs> You're in for Morocco. I'm doing 10 years for a holiday in Cape Town. <laughs> uh, well, all of this apparently is, is, is to keep out these variants, which might be resistant to our excellent vaccines. And one point to make is, as Professor Robert Dingwall, has, who I'm a big fan of, has pointed out, there have been 4,000 new variants, COVID variants, since March, and the United Kingdom can make variants of its own. Uh, Liverpool, uh, Kent, and now Bristol. I think that Bristol was the last one. Everywhere you look, absolute madness, really. People coming, mandatory hotel quarantine, 1,750 quid for for 10 nights. I think the best comment so far that we had was Lord Sumption in the Telegraph yesterday, thundering magnificently as only he can. Mr Hancock's connection with reality, which has been getting looser for some time, has finally snapped. 10 years is the maximum sentence for threats to kill, non-fatal poisonings or indecent assaults. Does Mr Hancock really think that non-disclosure of a visit to Portugal is worse than the large number of violent firearms offences or sexual (laughs) offences involving a minor, for which the maximum sentence is seven years? And and, and he goes on to describe the quarantine in hotels as brutal, inhumane and disproportionate. That assumption he's got gumption as former Supreme Court judges go. He's turning into some kind of warrior campaigner, isn't he? This is a bloke who was paid thousands of pounds a day to weigh his words very carefully. And now he's you know, shooting from the hip. He's, he's like a kind of shock jock 
He's, yeah. you know, he's giving Piers Morgan a run for his money. <laughs> but you have to agree, Liam. So when someone of that eminence says the, these measures are the work of people who think that there is no limit to the human misery, oppressive cruelty and economic damage or injustice that we must put up with if it reduces infections. And I do think now, I think how many conservative voters and conservative backbenchers will actually thinking when Hancock says he will stop at nothing to suppress the virus, he actually seems to be serious. And my concern really is this mission creep so we've got these zero COVID fanatics from Sage. Oh, I'm, I'm, I must tell you this. So it was actually one of these numpties from Sage. And you know what he said? He said, we could do the easy thing and not gather together for years. I mean, he literally said what? we could do the easy thing. I mean, it's not it's not a human <sighs> being speaking. Oh, we could easily, you know, I, we could easily not meet up with any of our friends or family for years. That Apparently he thought that was... The easy thing. And then look look at what that means for the model in my spreadsheet. Look how nice my graphs look. Look how yes. wonderfully my mathematical equations are then resolved. All you have to do is be in lockdown for the next 10 years. The idea that scientists should be in charge of public policy is mad. Oh. Scientists are there to advise from a scientific point of view. But the world is political. The world is human sociological, emotional. We cannot remove that humanity when we make these decisions. And why isn't Boris Johnson talking to more people beyond the scientists, to the psychologists, to people who focus on mental health, to economists even? Yeah. He has to widen his advisory circle. Yes, and if you, if you think about these promises or, you know, the, 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 the roadmap that we've been set, so first of all, we're going to be opening up by spring. Well, that seems to have slipped to summer. We can get our lives back once the over 70s are vaccinated. Well, suddenly it's the over 50s. Why does it need to be the over 50s, Liam? If we've got everybody vaccinated who's over 60, we've wiped out almost the vast majority of COVID deaths. And then it was when Boris declared the lockdown, the third lockdown back in January, that was to relieve pressure on the NHS. But now suddenly it's these scientists popping up on the media saying we've got to get to a thousand cases a day. So I think this is so psychologically damaging for those of us who are clinging on thinking just one more push, one more heave, like Wales scoring tries against the Irish, not, you know, not to, not to rub uh, salt yeah, in the wound. You had to do that, didn't you? You had to do that. <laughs> well, we, we can agree that we're both upset that the Scots beat the English at Twickenham. But congratulations <laughs> to the Scots. Congratulations. By no, God, I did they it... deserve that victory? Did they deserve that victory? They could have they could have won by 20 or 30 points. But as you said in your column, Alison, we're now on course with these vaccines to have vaccinated the top nine at-risk groups linked to 99% of deaths in mm. turn linked to COVID by the middle of March. And I think we had Rod Grant on last week, didn't we? The yeah, fabulous headmaster fantastic, from, yeah. from, from Edinburgh. Huge email response. But I think this notion of zero COVID is just off the wall. The notion that you can eliminate all risk, that is not human existence. And that is not, by the way, a rational thing to do. It's certainly not a rational way to run a country. And, and the real political pinch point now is schools, not least because mm. the Scots and the Welsh, to their credit, are going to try and open schools on the 22nd of February. And Boris Johnson is still saying that schools won't be opened until the 8th of March. But it strikes me we're in a situation where Boris now needs to lead. He needs to talk to people directly. He needs to lay out this roadmap. I don't think he can wait till the 22nd of February, to you know, almost a fortnight, to lay out this roadmap. As the good news from the vaccinations keeps rising, as we get down below the 60-year-olds into people in their 50s, people will be doing the maths for themselves. And it will seem increasingly like the power that the politicians have to keep us locked down has gone to their heads. There's no nice Absolutely. way to put yeah. it than that. Of course, it's difficult when you're a politician. You don't want to be blamed for coming out of lockdown too early. But on the other hand, we must recognise the enormous damage that this is doing to us as a society, as a human race. And so I think very, very soon Boris Johnson is going to have to announce when lockdown 
is eased, particularly as you get schools opening in Scotland and Wales. Planet Normal listeners always like the, the bit of the week where we go to George. Explain who George is, Liam. So George is somebody who we don't identify, though we have checked George's bona fides. We don't say whether George is male or female, but George works for NHS England. George has access, full access to the NHS England database and George responds to questions that Planet Normal readers put to us and then Alison reports the answers that George comes up with based on NHS England data. Planet Normal listeners are now bypassing Velma and let alone Shaggy. Okay. Hey, Scoops! I think Velma's feeling a bit a bit peeved. But anyway, so Liam, because on Planet Normal, you know we're really keen to make sure that everything we report is totally accurate, of course. These figures do matter. So we want to make clear that while we trust George and their statistics implicitly, we need to call these statistics from George Claims because they're not yet in the public domain. I hope that's clear. This week, the question I put to George was, Matt Hancock said, and I quote, the number of people in hospital is still way too high, but it's falling. So I asked George, how does it compare to this time last year? So general and acute beds on the 8th of February 2020, Liam, there were 90,380 beds occupied out of 97,398. That was 93% occupancy and that was before COVID started. 8th of February 2021, that was Monday this week, 78,215 beds are occupied out of 91,088 beds. That's 86% occupancy during COVID. So you can see that there was higher occupancy before we had the pandemic than there is now. And the difference, Liam, is looking at just looking at the adult critical care beds, 8th of February 2020. 2,878 were occupied. That's 80% occupancy. And on Monday this week, there were 4,713 critical care beds occupied by COVID patients out of 5,863. And that's 80% occupancy. That's low, isn't it? That's low by normal standards, 80% occupancy. The NHS ordinarily operates on much, much tighter margins than that. Yes, that's right. But George says the difference is that there is this shift towards critical care beds, which require much greater staffing ratios. Oh, OK. But, George says, for Matt Hancock to say it's way too high without any context is just another example of misleading use of data. And now we like to bring in this time of great gloom and despondency, we like to bring some good news. So I asked George, is there any possibility that we'd go under 25,000 beds occupied by COVID tomorrow? That's Friday. This is something that people have been talking about as being a possibility. We already are, says George, dropped below 25k last Friday morning. Okay. As of this morning, and that was on Sunday when we were talking, we were down to 22,800. And that is across all hospitals. That is a reduction of 10,000 hospital beds occupied by COVID patients in the last three weeks. It's looking like a much steeper drop off than we saw in May and June. The number of daily in-hospital diagnoses has fallen to just over a 1,000. Basically, we are where we were when the second lockdown started, except all the trends are going down rather than up. So, Liam, that really confirms, doesn't it, what we're talking about. We're seeing a very, very dramatic decrease in in hospital bed occupancy. God, there'll, there'll come a day, won't there, when I'm not the hospital bed occupancy correspondent. You wear your matron's uniform so well. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> actually, actually, given my lockdown comfort eating, it's more Hattie Jakes than Barbara, than Barbara Windsor, Windsor now. <laughs> now, I'm afraid. But yes, still the sticking point in ICU because we've got a lot of people who are very sick from a few weeks ago and... They're taking longer to go through, but they are getting better, Liam. And we've said this before, especially with elderly people who are scared. It's not a death sentence. Lots of people are getting better. Alison, you've written up some of those astonishing statistics from George in your Telegraph column in the paper of Wednesday the 10th of February and available online, of course. But I must ask you as your co-pilot, but also as your, as your friend, you mentioned something in the column which many readers, it will have brought them up short. You said that for all your bonhomie, for all your incredible resilience, 
for all the gumption with sumption that you show mm-hmm. on the Planet Normal podcast every week. And we're so glad that you do, that you've been struggling with lockdown. You've been feeling down. Even you, Alison Pearson, who so many others feel is their standard bearer, their word warrior, their, the person who bats and speaks for them. Yes, well, statistic jumped out at me, Liam, this week. There was a, a survey which said that one in five British adults has had suicidal thoughts. And I, I thought I'd share with readers and listeners that I have. It's very bleak, I know, to talk about it, but I think it's perhaps quite good to say that because it's not unusual if a fifth of us are feeling that. Now, I have some history of depression and there are things they tell you, Liam, if you feel an episode coming on, here are some simple things you can do. And it's about seeing friends, making yourself go out, you know, go and see a film. So all of the all of the standard remedies for depression are unavailable. And, and I, I suspect it's a combination. Of course, it's the worst time of year. So, we, you know, there's no light. So that's that's I've just diagnosed actually with a vitamin D deficiency despite taking a supplement. So I think that perhaps a lot of people have got very low vitamin levels. But also I think that lots of Planet Normal listeners have, have expressed it really well to us. There's, there's a sense of what the hell's going on. We voted for these people. What, what are they doing? I mean, it feels like they're playing mind games with us. Every week we find out that some of the things that have been said don't seem to be strictly accurate if we're going to be polite. So so I think it's a combination of those things. It's an inability to do the things that make us feel better, that cheer us up. Millions of us have got children, mine are young adults, but still I, I worry constantly about how they're doing and the future for them and elder, elderly parents as well. So, so we're all caught in this kind of vice of worry. And, you know, I think what really gets me, I mean, we have mentioned this before, Liam, but I do think that there are these people in a bubble, the people making these decisions, the scientists and the politicians, I don't think their lives have changed much at all. I think they are classified as key workers. So their children go to school. They are still mixing with colleagues. They're still getting out of the house. And it's millions of other people for whose plight I think they have very little empathy but yeah, no, I'm 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 keeping going, and I would say that obviously Planet Normal, doing Planet Normal, and feeling fired up by the stories everyone sends every week, and inspired to keep on going. But but I think we've all had great. Most of us will have had great dips. Even the indomitable Halligan must have had the odd moment of thinking, "What am I doing?" But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it has been very very stressful, and we have to think, Liam, about the people who haven't got the support networks that we have the people who are depressed and by um, and by themselves and that's the people i fear for so that's why that's why we do what we do isn't it so we keep insisting that this is not a normal life it's not as the man from sage said the easy thing to do would be to stay indoors for several years but i'm still here am i still here are we still alive halligan are we still alive we are still alive alice and i feel the same way about planet normal i've had moments of despair i look at my family, my young children, and think about their future. And yet here are you and I, two people at the top of the media game, if you like, with far more resources than many of our listeners and certainly than most of the country. If you do want to ring the Samaritans to talk anything through, the number is 116123. That's the phone number. It doesn't seem like a normal phone number, but you can ring that from any phone, 116123. Hello, former England hooker Brian Moore here. Well, the Six Nations is back and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Each week we will get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every rook, mall and TMO decision. You can't nab a front row seat this year, but with our podcast you don't need to. So just search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast app, hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss it. Last week, we invited Rod Grant to visit us on Planet Normal. Rod's headmaster at Clifton Hall School in Edinburgh and a powerful, passionate advocate for children's rights during lockdown. His interview touched a nerve with so many of you. Thank you for your wonderful emails. This week, you've invited a rather different guest, Alison. Not a teacher, 
but a professional scientist who we both admire. Yes, Liam, you know, for some time we've both been puzzling, haven't we, over the COVID death statistics? How are they recorded? How reliable are they? What about all these cases that sound so alarming? I thought we'd benefit from speaking to a, a terrific expert. Dr John Lee has been a professor of pathology and an NHS consultant pathologist for over 20 years, director of cancer services at the Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust and clinical director of pathology. John's also been a university teacher for over 30 years and listeners may have seen him on TV presenting two award-winning Channel 4 series, Anatomy for Beginners and Autopsy, Life and Death. John is now the spokesman on pathology for heart, H-A-R-T. We've we've talked about this last week, Liam. It's a new public health consultancy which is aiming to provide a much wider multidisciplinary perspective on the COVID crisis than we get from some of the SAGE scientists. I know, Liam, you and I have both hugely admired the articles on COVID and lockdown that John Lee has written for The Spectator in the past 10 months. Absolutely. Back in May, he had a terrific cover story with the striking headline, The Way COVID Deaths Are Being Counted is a National Scandal. So I began by asking John, is the way the UK has been counting COVID deaths to be trusted? The thing is, in this crisis, we've been counting deaths in a way that we've never previously counted deaths, and particularly deaths for a respiratory pathogen. So... Every winter, you know, quite a lot of people die of respiratory infections, especially elderly people, because it's one of the ways in which elderly people do die. And the way those deaths are recorded are normally something fairly nonspecific, like bronchopneumonia or pneumonia or even old age. Mm. But the fact is, since February, with, with COVID becoming a notifiable disease, we've been attributing a cause or trying to attribute a cause to, to many of the deaths that we've been recording. And it's effectively made it very difficult indeed to know how many deaths are really due to COVID as opposed to how many deaths are just with COVID having been found uh, by testing in in the patient. You also said in that spectator piece that some of your colleagues have been dismayed by changes introduced during the epidemic, which meant that pathology was not able to play the role it should have in helping us to understand the new disease. Is that what you meant by the changes, this, this different form of notification? Well, I think recording recording the death in this way just means it's become, well, I think it's become very difficult to know the role that COVID is playing in what we're seeing in the health service over the last year. Clearly, it's a new virus. Clearly, we have had an epidemic of it. I mean, what, what I've been trying to think about maybe a way in which we can present what's been happening over the last year to let people think about it more clearly. And I think we can do that by thinking about three things. And the three things are the nature of the threat due to this virus, the effectiveness of the responses that we've introduced to it, and then the cost, other costs of those responses. And I think if we just look at what's happened over the last year, it seems to me anyway that the the nature of the threat has been exaggerated and the effectiveness of the responses that have been introduced have been exaggerated, while the costs of the responses that we've introduced have been greatly underestimated. And you put those three things together and what we have is a pretty unpleasant view of of the world and, and not a way to deal with an epidemic. I've read that other countries, say Germany, for example, have been recording their COVID deaths differently to us. And at first, some countries didn't even include care home deaths in their statistics. John, do you think it's possible that that we're not the worst country for COVID mortality in Europe? Well, I think it is possible. I think really the problem with the numbers is that it's impossible to know what they mean. Because we've changed the way that we're recording, because they're not comparable with previous years, because we've adopted this strange way of recording a positive test within 28 days. And by the way, that's another whole can of worms. You cannot equate a positive test result by PCR testing with a case. Mm. I mean, you know, cases are symptomatic persons who are ill of a disease. Um, and if I just give you another example, you know, if you went around the population and you did the same sort of PCR testing for tuberculosis, mycobacterium tuberculosis bacterium, you'd probably find it in quite a few people. It doesn't mean they've got tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. It's probably just passing through or on their skin or somewhere. But the fact that you can detect something does not mean to say it's pathogenic. And it's the same with the, with the COVID virus. So I think the actual the, the numbers from our country and from other countries are very difficult to interpret within country and they're essentially impossible to interpret between countries. And that's why I think the most useful measure of what's been happening is all-cause mortality. Mm. So all-cause mortality is where you just look at the envelope of all deaths that have been happening over the last year. And yes, there's been a slight increase this year due to this new disease. Mm. But basically, if you go back about 15 years, it's not 
what we've been told is unprecedented. It's very precedented. Many of the years within the last 30 years have had death rates the same as or higher than this year's death rate. So that suggests that even though we've had a pandemic, it isn't really anything dramatically out of the ordinary, even though it was feared to be at the beginning. John, on the 6th of January, you said on Talk Radio that we were seeing mortality that was, quote, well within the envelope of what normally happens this time of year. I think you actually said we're below average point of the deaths at this time of year. And then you had this full fact, fact checking organisation, one of the many, you know, invigilators of what we say. They said that what you claim was incorrect. And they said over the four final weeks of 2020, the number of deaths was 16% above the 27 year average and 20% above the five year average. How would you respond to that correction? I did read the, the bit that they'd written about that. They mentioned towards the end of their thing, as far as I could see, that they thought correcting for population was quite important, but didn't make that much difference. I think it's essential to correct for population because uh, it makes a difference of about 20% over the last 30 years uh, or so. So I think it's essential to do that. And when you do that, actually, their alleged difference actually becomes a fair bit smaller. However, it came out on that interview. If you look at the median number of deaths per week calculated from the ONS statistics for the last 27 years, which are what's available, uh, and you compare this year's numbers to them, what you see is a quite a big spike in April. So something definite happened in March, April last year uh, when we had the new pandemic. And, and really what happened then was that a lot of elderly people died of respiratory infections, which were attributed to COVID. So that's, that's what happened. Whether that was true or not, we can argue about, but nevertheless, probably quite a few of them were. If you actually look at those numbers over the last few weeks now, from November till now, there is no spike. So whether it's slightly above average, whether it's slightly below average, the fact is it's not unprecedented and nothing dramatic is happening right now. So uh, the general point I was making was, was true. I suppose one can always argue around the corners of the, the actual numbers. What we do know is that there's been a big increase in deaths in the home. I mean, as, as well as being a pathologist, you know, you're a doctor of medicine, you've been a, in charge of sort of cancer specialisms. Do you think that that spike of about 30,000, 40,000 people dying in their own home? I mean, we hear on Planet Normal of people being either too frightened to go to the hospital because of COVID, because of what they've seen on the TV, or NHS services having shut down. And do, do you think that that's caused some of those excess deaths? Yes, well, of course, as with all these specific figures, it is quite difficult to get to the bottom of what's been happening. But the key thing is that we're all on the same side in this. The, the, the debate has been presented as quite a polarised mm. debate with, you know, for lockdown and against lockdown and for the government and against the government. But the government has been, I, I believe, in good faith, trying to do the right thing, but it's been basing its advice, it's been basing its actions on rather narrow advice that it's been taking. But obviously, we all understand that governments often have a difficult uh, mm. line to tread uh, in between making the least worst choices. I mean, sometimes there are no easy choices. It's just that it's highly contentious whether these lockdowns are the least worst choice or whether they're causing more damage than the actual virus itself. I, I fear the latter. I think that there's quite good evidence to suggest that not only are the lockdowns not very effective in stopping the virus spreading um, and possibly even pushing it to spread in ways or, or to change itself in ways that aren't in our best interests, but that the other deaths due to all these other things that, uh, that we've, we've been talking about are actually as big as or possibly outweigh the viral deaths, in which case, you know, what on earth are we doing? Why have we gone down this route? Certainly, why have we gone down this route without discussing it fully and openly and having a proper uh, you know, bedding in of what's the right approach? Yes, I, I was going to ask you, actually, could lockdown possibly have made the virus more deadly by forcing it to? I mean, we're hearing a lot about these mutations, aren't we? Could could us all being locked down, could that have made the virus have to be more ingenious about the, the, the new form it assumed? Well, it's, I, I think it's difficult for people to fully understand how, how evolution mm. works. The way evolution works is the virus doesn't know anything about going on. These are just little particles that are floating around in the atmosphere. The summary of evolution, if you like, is if you change the environment, you change the beast. Mm. So if you change the environment, basically only those beasts that survive in the new environment survive. So if you change or try and change the rules of human interaction, the viral particles that spread around will be the viral particles best adapted to spreading around in the new environment, whatever that is. So normally uh, with things like respiratory viruses, they tend to mutate to less virulent forms because most of the time we have a cold, you know, we might feel a bit under the weather, but we don't necessarily even take time off work with it. So we go to work, we spread it to other people, that causes us all to get immunity to it, and then that dies away or another mild form comes along. But of course, if you change the environment so that 
actually the way in which it spreads is by making people iller and those people have to be taken to hospitals where they then expose uh, you know, other patients in the hospital and the healthcare staff to the more worse variant of it. It's quite possible, I don't think we've got definitive evidence on that, but it's quite possible that actually you make the virus worse than it otherwise would have been. That's a very good explanation for a non-scientist, John. I'm very grateful for that. Every day on the news, we hear these very scary figures, you know, thousands of new COVID cases. Do you think we'll ever have a true picture of what constitutes an infectious COVID case, given the debate over the reliability of the various testing methods? I think it's very difficult to achieve that in the current circumstances because there's too much I think vested interest in certain ways of doing things that have already been done. But the the bottom line is PCR is a quite a finicky test. It's um, when you when you do twenty five cycles of PCR, uh, you know you multiply things something like thirty four million times. Uh, if you do thirty five cycles, it's thirty four billion times. So the, the test is is quite sensitive to operator. It's quite sensitive to contamination. And the real question is is what constitutes a COVID case? Is it reasonable to suggest that a detection of a bit of COVID RNA means that that person has the disease of COVID? And I think it's quite clear, I mean, there really isn't any debate about this in scientific and medical circles. It's quite clear that you cannot simply equate those two things. It's certainly quite possible to discover viral particles and get a positive test while having not only no symptoms, but really nothing that would suggest that you had the disease. So I think to equate those two things is is building in misinformation essentially into the system and that's why i say it's very difficult to get to the bottom of, of the deaths i mean i was slightly worried recently to hear an ex-government health minister jeremy hunt sort of suggesting that maybe we should only have a thousand cases before we end the lockdown and this is i have to say that is scientific and medical twaddle it's complete nonsense it's a bit like if the government decided it was going to have a uh, an anti-obesity run and it sort of introduced a policy and said something like, right, nobody's allowed to go to the restaurant until there are fewer than a thousand people who weigh more than 11 stone or something <laughs> like that. It won't work because the virus doesn't care what we think and the maths and the way the virus spreads will determine that. And setting arbitrary targets is just a recipe for more unhappiness, I think, and for more failure of policy. Tragically, we have seen many infections and deaths which have taken place in care homes and hospitals, so-called nosocomial infections that... Why was the NHS so unprepared for the epidemic, do you think? I mean, we're supposed to have had a pandemic plan, aren't we? I, I think, unfortunately, the NHS in this particular instance has suffered the way it, it suffered, as I've witnessed it suffering throughout my career. Uh, it suffered too much from top-downism, and it doesn't make enough use of the talents of the, the people who work within it uh, to come up with good ideas and ways of managing things. It has to all be the same, and it has to be top-down, and it just doesn't work very well. It's a very clunky old-fashioned system and I think certainly one of the consequences I hope uh, of this year will be that we'll have unfortunately have to have uh, another major relook at whether the NHS is a fit-for-purpose model uh, in this day and age. I think I think there are other ways of doing it which would could quite easily be better. Something we're hearing about every week on Planet Normal, I mean you've, you've had cancer as one of your specialisms is people who have been unable to continue cancer treatment let alone get a get a diagnosis and one of the amazing things John to me was that the NHS or indeed the government requisitioned the private hospitals at, at, you know for hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds but we heard recently that uh, two-thirds of those hospitals were never used I mean in your day or in the days of more veteran doctors there were fever hospitals in previous um, epidemics. I agree. I mean, I, I think this should have been done from, from right last year when we, we showed what's possible by doing the Nightingale hospitals. So we, we managed to make all these hospitals in double quick time and then never used them. Clearly, trying to run ordinary NHS hospitals as simultaneous hospitals for general medical care, including all different things, and infectious disease control hospitals is ridiculous because it can't possibly work. And the lack of medical care that's been given over the last year has been has been a self-imposed own goal. Yes, I absolutely think we should have commissioned the Nightingale hospitals and used them as fever hospitals. Most people, or very many people with COVID are not that ill. So they could have been looked after in fever hospitals with perhaps a lower standard of, uh, or lower intensity of nursing care and perhaps a lower standard of nursing care than you might get in acute hospitals where people have all sorts of other conditions in. But it, it, it doesn't seem to have even been looked at. And I think that's just a nonsense really. And a, another failure of, of, of seeing the big picture. I, I think that's the trouble. I think 
my, my take is that SAGE has become very invested in a lot of details to do with epidemiology and modeling approaches to viruses. And they've become very invested in this. And a lot of, in a lot of areas, the big picture has been missed. Isn't there this very unpleasant, though, polarisation? We had a previous guest on Planet Normal was Professor Shanetra Gupta. You'll know one of the world's leading epidemiologists. I mean, she's been absolutely demonised for signing this great Barrington Declaration, which is arguing for focused protection of the vulnerable and uh, for saying, as you're implying today, John, that lockdown causes more harm than good. I mean, what are the implications for science when, you know, I mean, I mean, you're not all mad, are you, if you're saying this stuff? I hope not. <laughs> I, hope not. I mean, I think what people don't understand, I mean, people who are not in, in, in science don't understand is that when you go to scientific meetings, it's not people sort of uh, listening politely while other people present black and white results that everybody agrees with and then you go on to the next talk. There's ongoing, often highly impassioned mm. argument about just about everything, because it's through that sort of argument and through that process that you actually do get scientific advice and you do be able to understand in more detail and more clearly you know, the way things work in the world, which is the, the aim of the whole thing, I guess. So it's actually quite normal for science to be quite impassioned. But in this particular case, what we've got is you know, there are people who know about this stuff and some of them are on SAGE and some of them are not on SAGE. But the thing is, because the understanding of it is not black and white. I mean, there's a there's a contradiction in a way, isn't there, at the centre of the government's policy in this. On the one hand, they say this is a totally unprecedented thing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they tell us, but Sage know exactly what we've got to do about it, and therefore there should be no discussion, and we should just get on and do what we're told. Well, clearly, those two points of view, which are both embedded in the government's policy, are not compatible. This is a, a virus which is a nasty respiratory virus, but it's within the range that, has, that humanity has sailed through before without massive disruption to society. So at the very least, it seems to me, there needs to be a much wider discussion about what the best way to deal with this. Not only because it's not sustainable to carry on doing this, whatever COVID does, but also surely we can't do this every time a new viral variant appears or every time a new type of virus appears, which will definitely happen in the future and possibly in the not very distant future as well. I think you may be making the fundamental mistake, John, of actually using logic there, because surely what's happened during this past 10 months is that people have been very, very frightened. And if we were to have on the evening news some of the 450 people who die every day of cancer, then that would be intolerable, wouldn't it? But we've had that night after night. And hasn't that changed the nature of the debate? And you, you can sit there and say these things to me and they're true. But to some extent, they don't have any purchase against this vast wall of fear that's now been created. The way it's been presented, exactly. I mean, that, that has created a vast wall of fear. And that's what we're trying to argue we should, we should get away from. Because surely for people to be able to understand what they're seeing, if they are only presented with one side of the story uh, on the news night after night after night after night, I mean, there are any number of regimes around the world who use that as their normal modus operandi, doesn't it? And it does work quite well, but it's not the truth. Death is a fact of life. And, uh, you know, what we need is to have a discussion about COVID and about the responses to COVID and about what we should do for future viruses. Um, that's actually a grown-up conversation, doesn't treat people like infants, uh, treats the population of the country like grown-ups who can understand sensible discussion and present it the way we normally present anything else. Mm. Professor Tim Spector of King's London, who's been running the very successful Zoe app, which has been a very valuable source of information during the pandemic, he said a couple of days ago that large gatherings like big weddings won't be possible till 2022. I mean, I was sort of really uh, taken aback by that. And I thought, will the scientists ever release their grip on society now? I mean, really, should any scientist be saying you won't be able to have a big, lovely wedding until, you know, sort of the summer after this one? What, what do you think, John? Well, I mean, I'm speaking as somebody who's a doctor, also a scientist. I understand nerdy scientists because to some extent I'm a bit of one myself. Mm -hmm. But I think nerdy scientists are the last people to be running society. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, not me. Yeah. Because they can't, they, they, they focus on what they focus on and they tend to miss the big picture. And the fact is, there's more to life than COVID. There's more to life than death. Apart from anything else, the fact is that this virus, as everybody agrees, has very little effect on people under 60 if they're not already ill with other conditions. So to shut down the whole of that sector of society on, in the name of protecting lives in the elderly population society doesn't make any sense anyway. And I, frankly, I don't think... Uh, 
people who are advising the government on these things should be speaking out in public. I mean, I think, I mean, in the old days, people who advised government kept quiet in public because they gave their advice to government and government acted on it. All this briefing of the media by all different things, basically to say how important their research is um, and how, how, you know, what a major effect this is going to have on society. I, I really can't understand the motivation for it, frankly. I, I think it's, and I think it's actually scientifically and medically completely wrong. So I, I disagree on, on all levels with that sort of statement. And finally, how in the in the future, how do you think pathologists like yourself in a hundred years time will look back on this thing called the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, I think when the dust settles on this and it's looked back on, well, I'd like to say that it'll be seen as, a, as an overreaction to, to a new pathogen that was a one-off thing that people learned from and that, was, that they never did again. I'm not sure that I think this hasn't got so big. I mean, so many governments have become so deeply embroiled in a very similar approach that uh, I'm not sure that when things get this big, it's possible to get uh, you know a clear picture of it afterwards because there's so many vested interests in um, you know keeping a particular narrative. So I think there may be uh, polarisation in the ways that this is viewed. But I think that the correct way to view it will be that it, we overdid it. Quite incredible interview there with Professor. John Lee, let's just be clear who we've just heard from, Alison. This guy's got a BSc and a PhD in physiology from UCL, world class. He then got a medical degree specialising in pathology, many years as a consultant with the NHS. John Lee wears his science lightly, doesn't he? He doesn't ram his learning down your neck. He's quite a user-friendly scientist, but this is a guy with serious credentials. And two things really struck me from that interview. The first was... What we've said on for many months on Planet Normal, the inadequacy of PCR tests mm. as a way of detecting COVID. Uh, you can have shards of COVID, you can have small elements of the virus, just like you can have small evident elements of tuberculosis. It doesn't mean that you've actually caught the condition. And this use of the word cases by the medical and political establishment for anybody who's positive with a PCR test is, as he said, medical and scientific twaddle. And the other thing that really struck me, again, it's something that we've stressed but isn't stressed nearly enough, is that the only thing you can really count knowledgeably is mortality. Mm. If somebody is dead, they are dead. You can't know what they died from, of, with, related to COVID. But if you have, you know, crudely, you know, a dead body, they are dead. And if you look at all-cause mortality, these numbers can't be stressed enough. On the data we've got so far, and I'm looking at the ONS database, which I spend a lot of my life on these days. You're never off that, are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to out Velma Velma. I, I can't have you taking my statistical mantle with your bloody Hattie Jake's hat and your purple, purple roll neck. But we think in 2020, we're at a, around 10.2 deaths per thousand people. I'm sorry to be morbid about this. I'm looking at this scientifically. We're looking at about 10.2 per thousand. And yes, that is up on recent years. But as Professor John Lee stressed, it was 10.2 back in 2003. And every single year before 2003, it was higher than 10.2. Mm. I mean, back in back in the late 70s, we're up at 12. In the 60s also, we're at 12.2 in 1963. None of this is to say that 10.2 isn't a bad number. And as John acknowledged, you know, up on 2019. But the human race has survived this level of fatality in the past, mm. breezed through it. It may have been higher without lockdown, we don't know. We certainly know that lockdown itself has caused an awful lot of non-COVID deaths. But you have to keep looking at these all-cause mortality numbers because they can't be gainsaid. It is literally, pardon the phrase, a body count. And the all-cause mortality numbers, as John Lee stressed there, and he'll be shot down for doing it, and I'll be shot down for what I've just said. But historically, they are by no means out of the ordinary. And prior to 2003, 10.2 per thousand was a good number. I really enjoyed talking to John. I found it, it's immensely reassuring. I think 
He's very keen to stress that we're all on the same side. As we know, Liam, it's been a very, very divisive and got quite ugly, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. What he's saying is that the government, what you said earlier earlier today, is that the government is uh, drawing on a very narrow range of advice. I, I absolutely love the fact that he said that as a nerdy scientist, he would say that we are the last people to be running society. I mean, <laughs> it, it was good he said that. It's hard for the people like us to say it, but missing the big picture. And I thought, um, you you know, the way he said that Jeremy Hunt, you know, calling for us to get down to a thousand cases a day before we relax the restrictions. He, John, described that as scientific and medical twaddle. Twaddle, that's a, that's a good word to add to our planet normal lexicon. And you'll notice, Liam, that he also wanted to break it down into clear chunks because people are very scared. He's saying there are three things to think about. The nature of the threat, which he says has been overestimated, the effectiveness of the response, and then the cost of that response, which he said has been underestimated. And I thought he spelt it out with great, great clarity. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure Planet Normal listeners will really feel very enlightened, um, as I did by hearing John. Now, some listener emails, a selection of the messages that you've sent to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Do keep sending your wonderful, moving and informative messages. Liam and I learn so much from the stories you tell us. And here's a case in point, Liam. You may remember that back in November, we had an email from Nick, who was an ex-chairman of a major NHS trust. You might remember that. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So Nick wrote to us again this week. He said, hearing John's story on Planet Normal last week prompted me to write about the experience of my wife and I over the last few months. You have quoted me several times on the podcast, but I would never have imagined the nightmare we have now had. Basically, my wife's been complaining for several years of aches and pains to our GP, only to be fobbed off with excuses. As the pains worsened from September, still nothing was done. No GPs could be seen. Yet my wife had previously had breast cancer 15 years ago, which should have rung alarm bells. We even tried A&E on one occasion to be assured nothing was wrong. We were told we could self-refer to the physio. The surgery wouldn't do it. Yet when we did, all they would do was a telephone conversation followed by some exercises. What is the point of physio if you do not see the patient? Our GPs ignored our requests and letters from physios for an x-ray or a scan. Weeks went by and my wife's condition worsened until she could not bend over, get up and down or walk unaided. Eventually, her pain became so severe that I demanded painkillers. Only then was an x-ray in early January booked. And of course, it didn't show arthritis, but other signs. Only then did panic set in and our nightmare start. The resulting blood test showed high calcium and Joy was rushed to hospital. Three weeks later, she's had a major operation on her hip and femur where cancer had eaten into the bones. A very unpleasant and lonely stay in hospitals with short-staffed wards, COVID an ever-present threat and the lack of sleep and attention leading to depression, fatigue and indeed anger. We are now awaiting the verdict on where the cancer has come from, what type, how widespread. At best, a long and unpleasant treatment programme awaits. This, Alison Liam, is the truth of what happens when COVID is all that matters. If I hear Matt Hancock say once more that GP and hospital services are looking after all those who need the NHS, I will scream. If I hear him boasting that GPs can now provide the same service through telephone contact, I will throw something at the TV. The truth is very different. Our GP actually admitted that he was horrified how my wife had deteriorated when he finally saw her instead of relying on the telephone. As with children's education, the health and well-being of this nation is being ruined forever, yet the media and the politicians just don't care. What is the point of an opposition party when all they do is demand more restrictions, when it is so obvious that it is the restrictions that are doing the damage rather than COVID? I despair. Thanks again for all you are doing, Nick. So that, Liam, is the former chairman of a major NHS trust. Blimey. Here's an email from Chloe. Dear Alison and Liam, thanks so much for our weekly trips to Planet Normal. It's refreshing to have a dose of sanity in the world that seems utterly disconnected from common sense. 
I'm 24 and I live in a flat with friends from university. We're all healthy and haven't visited our grandparents for a year now. Many of my other friends are in the same situation, living in small flats, often eating, sleeping and working all day in the same room. I'm normally very cheerful, looking on the bright side, but lately I've felt there is no bright side. Every week, despite whatever progress we've made, there's another reason to extend lockdown and keep us in this perpetual cycle of living the same day over and over again. I've looked at the statistics for myself. The threat this virus poses to me and others like me is minuscule. Last March, we didn't have such data, but now we do. And it seems cruel to keep young people locked up, destroying our mental health and the economy for a disease with an average age of death higher than the UK's broader life expectancy. I don't want to be treated with kid gloves anymore. This is a dangerous virus for some people. We're all aware of the risks by now, and we should be able to decide for ourselves what level of risk we're personally willing to take. I feel as though my life's on hold and I'm simply existing. I have no motivation and luck, nothing to look forward to. I sincerely hope we can get out of this soon. Thanks for Planet Normal. That's Chloe, age 24. Chloe, you have your whole life ahead of you. You have a huge amount to look forward to. Just hang in there. Yeah, absolutely, Chloe. My daughter's exactly the same age as you. And uh, we're going to make sure, aren't we, Liam, that there's, there's a really bright future for you guys. Liam, as you said, so much reaction to the fantastic interview you did last week with Rod Grant, that inspirational headmaster of Clifton Hall School in Edinburgh. Nikki was one of the many who responded to that. Listening to Rod Grant explain his worries and fears for our children brought me to tears and gave me an overwhelming feeling of helplessness. My husband and I have two daughters aged 10 and 7. Our seven-year-old first started complaining of a shortness of breath last year around November time. She would tell us that she'd be sitting in her classroom and suddenly her breathing would quicken. She'd start to feel unsteady and her heart would race. We put it down to excess worrying, so I bought some books to help her with that, what I assumed was anxiety. Then last week, our oldest, who has literally slept through the night since he was two weeks old, came into our bedroom shortly after falling asleep to tell us that she had lost her breath and woke up feeling terrified with the racing heartbeat, which was still hammering as she stood by our bedside. After listening to Rod, it has horrifyingly dawned on me that both of my children have been suffering panic attacks over the last four months. I don't need to tell you how concerned I am to realise this. We're a normal, working, middle-class family. I'm a yoga teacher. My husband is a computer programmer. We don't have the news on in the house and we've tried to reduce our children's exposure to anything COVID related. Please understand that I don't pretend because I'm a yoga teacher that my children have perfected the art of meditation, have got any kind of mindfulness or Zen. Saying that, I do try to filter down to them the odd nod towards mindfulness. Even with that, my children are clearly being affected by lockdown and being kept away from their family, school, friends, clubs and everything we used to be so busy with before life was stopped. Near the end of Thursday's podcast, Liam referenced a couple of online articles and he told us listeners to do our own research because this kind of stuff is not getting on the mainstream media. Can you advise how we can help? There must be so many concerned and frustrated parents like us out there, and I'm sick of sitting at home doing nothing. No, I don't want to be a storm, the capital type of moment, but maybe some advice on how we can help spread the word on how badly our children are being affected through all of this. Liam, Nikki actually has attached for us a little letter, very, very marvellous little letter, which comes from her seven-year-old, and I'm going to read it out now. Dear Boris, I don't like this virus, even though it's not your fault. I wish there was something that you could do, like open something. Anything, please. From Isla Taylor, age seven. P.S. Please open something. Well, we agree with you, Isla. Please open something. Hooray for Isla. Hooray for Isla. <laughs> I know you read my column this week because you're very loyal that way. I've just had nothing better to do. <laughs> Took a few seconds away from the ONS database to yeah. uh, to glance at the Pearson pros. Um, so I, I tackled this extraordinary, the latest in instance of woke madness in our country, which was that historic England 
which is a public body whose job really is to preserve buildings and monuments. But it's been um, busy drawing up a list of tainted places, Liam, including chapels where people with links to the slave trade worshipped and the graves, the long, long forgotten graves of slave profiteers, basically going around sort of digging up trouble and all these sort of rather blameless villages in England which have now been fingered for having pubs with the wrong name. The dark history of great snoring and <laughs> little gidding. Well, yeah, <laughs> and I got a huge response to that. And this is this is a reply that really spoke to me and I think it will speak to you as well. This is from someone with the alias de facto. My great-grandfather died in the workhouse infirmary in 1912. His father died in the workhouse in 1875. For some reason, I have no wish to destroy the statues of the landowners and capitalists who drove my ancestors into penury, nor do I want the owners of properties they endowed to go through a process of self-flagellation and faux sincerity in order to apologise for the sins of the past. My ancestors, your ancestors, were victims of feudalism and ruthless capitalism. So what? It happened. No apologies are necessary for a process of history over which we had no control. Let's just move on. And I just want to say, Liam, that both our families, even in even in the recent past, were were in service, weren't they? They had a really kind of poor time. And when I go to a National Trust property and I'm, you know, picking up the knickknacks in the gift shop, I don't sit there festering because the people who lived in that house oppressed my ancestors. And I really feel that if, if we should be focusing on something, it's on modern slavery now, which is a huge disgusting scourge in in this country as well as as well as internationally and yet um historic england which we give 88.5 million pounds a year to is going around stirring up trouble about you know historic injustices which which most people have have long you know long forgotten indeed my mother's uh, elder sisters were all in service and her mother and on my father's side they my grandparents were obviously grew up in Ireland, their parents and grandparents having experienced the, the famine. Yeah. So there's, 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 there's no shortage of dark history on this podcast, mate. And this is from Charles, which, which speaks exactly to this. This is one of my favourite emails ever. <laughs> As a proud Celt of Britain, says Charles, I ask whether you can help me in my quest for reparations and an apology from Italy, a.k.a. the Roman Empire and the Nordic nations for enslaving and invading my ancestral countries. <laughs> I find I can barely sleep at night for the outrage at the thought of my Welsh forefathers being forcibly brought under the Pax Romana. My Irish ancestry also feels violated by the Nordic empiricism of the 9th and 10th centuries. <laughs> there they were, my ancestors, quietly minding their own business when along came the longboats, raping, pillaging and enslaving all before them. Is there ever going to be recognition or reparation for the hurt I feel for those I've never met and never known? For every time I see an Ionic or Doric column, I shudder, and I can't tell you how the thought of horned helmets terrorises my dreams. If I push a Corinthian column over, will it ease my suffering? I do hope you can help, and do please keep recording Planet Normal for us, the unrepresented masses. Yours in ancient bondage, or whatever, <laughs> Charles. Fantastic, Charles. That's, uh, you know, really brilliantly said. Before we go, Alison, some news about us, because Planet Normal, drumroll, since May we've had a million downloads, ah! which apparently is quite good. So it means there are people out there listening to us. <laughs> the Planet Normal citizenship is growing and there's demand for what we're saying. Can you believe it? A million listens. Well, look, I knew that there were a lot of Halligan cousins from the old country. And I knew you'd slip them. I knew you'd slip them all a fiver to listen. But even the quorum of Halligan cousins can't possibly get us to. Uh, no, it's absolutely wonderful. And, and, and the Halligan bank account doesn't stretch at the moment to five million quid, so or punts even, or euro, or whatever they're using now. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. Our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. This has been quite a tough episode. A few laughs but maybe not as many as normal. But as I said, our mood does tend to reflect the emails you send us. Again, if you're really struggling and want to ring the Samaritans, those brilliant people are always available night and day on 116123. And of course, Alison and I will be back for another trip to Planet Normal next week. 
and responding to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released, between 11am and 12 noon. Do please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple iTunes. Got some absolutely lovely reviews or wherever you listen to your podcast. Leaving a five-star rating helps others to find us and helping the Planet Normal family to grow. So as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, and here's to the next million, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic tees, soft structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim, all made right here in the USA with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code GRATEFULAG23.